Well, friends, I invite you to open up your worship guides uh, or your Bibles. Today, we're going to be looking at Haggai, Haggai 2, 20 through 30. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Haggai together. And right now, we're just wrapping up this very short sermon series at this Old Testament book. Haggai is a prophet. He's sent from the Lord to encourage God's people as they are back at home and they are going about their lives there. So Haggai comes to Israel and encourages them. He tells them to engage in this work of rebuilding the temple, to renew their covenant with the Lord and to be his people. So Haggai is a book that actually really encourages us amidst our hard times. It lifts our eyes from the hardship of our life amidst the misery of sin of today and lifts our eyes to to Jesus. And so today we're going to see how God does just that. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. This is Haggai 2, verses 20 through 23. I'm going to be reading from the ESV translation. So let's give our careful attention to this book that we love. You can follow along on the wall behind me, your worship guide, or in your own scripture. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judea. Of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you declares the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father God, we pray now for your word to be working in our hearts, that your spirit would be planting your word deeply, that your spirit would be working in our hearts, convicting us, encouraging us, comforting us, that we would know your love and your beauty amidst our sinfulness and our need. Of you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. As we think about this passage right away, I want you to think about the fact that we are a faithless people. We are a faithless people. That within the pages of Scripture, we see this story told over and over again. That at the very beginning of creation, God created Adam and Eve, and he enjoyed this wonderful relationship with them, walking alongside them in the garden, and yet, and yet. They picked up some fruit. We have no idea what it is. It could have been a tangerine or an apple or a pear. Who knows? It could be something completely different. And they ate of it. It was the one thing they were forbidden from doing. They were told not to do. And they did it anyways. And then fast forward several pages later uh, from Genesis to Exodus. And we see that God rescues Israel from the land of slavery. They are physically delivered from physical bondage and whips and hard labor. God rescued them from Egypt. He delivered them from the entire armies of Egypt at the Red Sea. And so they set up camp around Mount Sinai. Their leader, Moses, goes up on the mountain through here from the Lord, and he's receiving God's instructions for his people. And meanwhile, while Moses is up on the mountain, after all this deliverance, what's going on back at camp? 
they take their gold, they melt it down, and they shape it in the form of a golden calf, and they worship the golden calf. And if you fast forward to Jesus' life, you see his own best friend, John, abandon him. You see another good friend, Peter, deny him. And so the picture that scripture tells us, and we experience this in our daily lives, is that we are a faithless people, that we lie, or we're, and at the very least, you're going to agree that you're tempted to lie, that we lie and we tell partial truths, we want to look good to other people, that we cheat, we abandon, and, and so much more. And one of the things I tell couples in premarital counseling is, the, is this, is that I want you to have the realization that there will be many moments in your marriage that you're going to come to terms with the fact that you are actually intentionally hurting each other. That you will intentionally hurt the person whom you love the most. We are a faithless people. I actually loved how Andy put it earlier in our call to confession, is that when we feel distant from God, who is it that moved? Did we move or did God move? And this is actually a passage that gets at all these dynamics, that we are a faithless people, but our one and our only hope is that we have a faithful God. And this passage is actually not about our faithlessness, it's about our faithful God. This passage is about how God is faithful to you. And so there's some special significance about Haggai that I just want to think about before moving on to the specifics of this text. That Haggai, if you've been with us, we've considered how he is concerned with the homelessness of God. That Israel has returned to their homeland. They're going about their habits and routines of rebuilding their own homes. And, but they have been neglecting something. They have neglected rebuilding the Lord's temple. And the Lord's temple is a sign of God's presence amongst his people. So Israel has been happily living with God's absence. They have not been giving a thought or care to pursue the Lord and his presence. And so we see that they're just happy with God's absence. And so his ministry, Haggai's ministry, actually sparks this new renewal, this rebuilding effort in rebuilding the, the temple so that no longer are the Israelites living under these covenant curses that God spoke about in Deuteronomy, but now they're actually living under these covenant blessings. The temple, the rebuilding effort is underway. They are receiving new blessings, but something is still missing. Something is still missing. And it has to do with their king. And, and so as we think about this passage, I want us to consider that our faithful God, that since we are faithless, you need a faithful king who pursues you. Since you are faithless, you need a faithful king who pursues you. And how do we see that in this text? How do we see that in this text? I want us to start off by looking at the end of this these verses here by focusing on this signet ring. That Zerubbabel is the man who's being addressed and he is being called the signet ring, the signet ring. And so the Lord tells Zerubbabel that he is going to make him into a signet ring. And the literal translation to Hebrew is that he is a seal. 
as a, not a signet ring, but seals in the ancient world were worn around a necklace. They were worn also on top of a ring and that they would always be on the owner's person at all times. Kings would use their signet ring or, or their seal to seal documents to prove the authenticity. Think about that for a moment. That a seal, a signet ring would be used to, pro- be, to prove the authenticity of something. The, to prove that this is genuine. To prove that it is true. And that this, but this analogy of a signet ring is actually used elsewhere. Another prophet, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 22, this is what God says through Jeremiah to Israel. And this is before the exile. So this is before Haggai's ministry. This is what God says. As I live, declares the Lord, through Cornish, the son of Jehoiakim, king king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet... I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into those whom you are afraid of. I will cast you away and you will die. So what the picture that Jeremiah gives us is that here is a signet ring and he's talking to the king of Israel. And he's saying, I will take you off and th- cast you aside into the hands of those who want to kill you. And the signet ring is actually a, a picture to the covenant that God makes with David. And David is a big deal within scripture. We know more about David than any other person other than Jesus Christ. Now we know so much about David that he wrote many of the Psalms that 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Kings, and many other, even Ruth. So all those are books that are dealing with the person of David and his descendants. And that God makes a promise with David that one of his descendants is going to rule over God's people. And that that is going to be a sign of God's love and commitment to the Israelite people. That one of those descendants is going to be the promised and prophesied and anointed king who's going to make all things right. And that covenant that's clearly seen in one of David's descendants ruling over God's people. That covenant is, is showing the truthfulness of God's faithfulness to his people. That this is what proved God's covenant love to his people. So when you understand that, the gravity of Jeremiah's words, and that's spoken before the fall of Jerusalem, the fall and the exile, it was the final announcement of God's judgment upon God's people. And this is seen elsewhere in Psalm 89. You have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servants. So this is actually in the experience of Israel. Israel has come back to Jerusalem. They're going about their rebuilding effort. They're no longer experiencing the judgment of the Lord. They're now experiencing his blessing, but there's still something missing. What about their king? God has clearly said that, you know, I don't move on. I'm that signet ring, I've tear, torn it off and I've tossed it aside. But this is actually the picture that we have. That God is speaking to Zerubbabel and saying, you're actually my, my signet ring. That Zerubbabel, by the way, he's not a pawn. He's not a Persian appointee. You want to take a guess who his great, 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 great grandfather was? Perhaps a few more greats. It's King David. If you want to fast forward to Matthew 1, verse 13, he's listed in Jesus' genealogy. 
So this is a picture of God's faithfulness to God's people amidst their sin. And because all of these details matter, that God is faithful to his promise, that God is faithful to his promise. And so that there's a renewal, there's a covenantal renewal that's going on here, that God is promising his people something, that God is promising to work through Zerubbabel, and we need to take this heart. And what that point is, is that God will never abandon you, that God will never forsake you, that God will never give up on you. He is faithful, that God is renewing his covenant to David and his line and to his people. He's renewing his covenant to his people, and he's showing us that he's going to bring about salvation through David's descendants throughout the whole world. That one day that God's faithfulness through David and his descendants will triumph and win in the end. And so that's just with the signet ring. Now some other details. Uh, to think about really the theophany that's being described here, where specifically looking at the verse, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. We saw this type of language earlier, that this is a theophany. Specifically, a theophany is what, the appearance of God to his people through certain things, like the burning bush in Exodus 3, the, the pillar of fire going over the tabernacle at night, or the, the cloud as well. There's many theophanies all throughout scripture, but this is a theophany as well, that all of creation would shake when God would appear again. And if you were with us a few weeks ago, we saw how this prophecy from Haggai 2, when God's glory returned to the temple, was fulfilled when Jesus was presented at the temple when he was a young baby. And Simeon prayed over him, that prayer of adoration that we use this morning. But there's a difference to this theophany, that this theophany has a picture of, of coming judgment. This is a picture of coming judgment, and it's using very well-known words that the Hebrews would understand. Now, and I want to slow down and think through these words for us. That's verse 22, we see overthrow and destroy. That here God promises to overturn and destroy the power of kingdoms who that compete with his glory. We see this in Psalm 2, but this, these are also the words that are used to describe God's judgment upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis. We see that he promises to overthrow the chariots and their riders. And chariots in the ancient Near East were the elite forces of an army. They were the special forces. But for any Israelite, you would be reminded of the Lord overthrowing chariots on the Red Sea. When the Egyptians were pursuing the Israelites with their chariots, and yet they're all swept up as God delivered Israel through the Red Sea. And then he writes about brothers, uh, verse 22, brothers rising up against brothers. This is a picture of civil war. That again, Israelites would remember this in a specific way, thinking about the time of judges, the time before the life of David, when everyone would do what was right in their own eyes. And so the language of verse 22 here reminds God's people of his redemptive action and his faithfulness in the past, that God has actually always been faithful to his covenant and has rescued his people, that God has used his power to judge wickedness, to judge the evil within this world, and to save his people. 
And so God, the Haggai specifically, by using this traditional language, the Lord is reminding his people how in the past he always judged wickedness in order to save his people. But this is not just a past event. This is also a present event, but it's also for the future as well. And that we are actually just like the Israelites. We think to ourselves, you know, that's great, Lord. You have done great things for us in the past, but what are you doing in my life right now? You've done great things in the past, but what about tomorrow? What are you doing in my life? And so at this moment, if you look at the end of Haggai, how does the people of Israel respond to all of this? That here we have a descendant of David that is being that the Lord is saying, you are my chosen king to rule over this, these people. That the Lord is renewing his covenant with them. But does God actually call upon the people to crown Zerubbabel and to rebel against the Persian Empire? No. Like how prophets, when you look at the Hebrew prophetic literature, they, when they leave you hanging like this, they actually want you to look further down the story to, where, to see what else happens. That there's this call to expectation to see what God is going to do in their life into the future. That the people were to wait with this expectation for the day that God would act to make things right. And you know God does make things right. And the answer to that is actually through Zerubbabel and his great, 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 great grandson. In the world's eyes, Zerubbabel's life had little significance. He was a minor government official in the backwater province. Then he, was the, he inherited a crown that was rejected. But yet, in spite of his lack of accomplishments, of his outward majesty, the, God actually gave him some very significant things to do. One is to rebuild the temple. But then also, as a part of his covenantal faithfulness was to have his grandson named Jesus Christ. So Zerubbabel is actually the king who rebuilds the temple. He is called, look at this in verse 23, Zerubbabel, my servant. Do you know who else is called my servant within scripture? It's King David and Jesus. It's reserved for the, the, those who are part of the Davidic line. And so Zerubbabel, in many ways, is an example for us to consider because he is quietly and faithfully following Jesus. He's quietly and faithfully following God. And I will come back. I'll circle back to that in a few moments. But I want to think more about his grandson. Because his great, 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 great grandson. That Jesus was like Zerubbabel in many ways. That the prophet Isaiah writes this, that nothing that Jesus had nothing to brag about, that he had no form or majesty that we should desire him. Yet Jesus was a servant, just like the, how Zerubbabel is being described, my servant. That Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be held onto, but he took on the form of a servant. So the picture for us, the real servant that we, are, we have for us is Jesus Christ. The real example of faithfulness is not Zerubbabel, it's actually Jesus Christ. And the signet ring that proves, that, is, that shows the truthfulness and the authenticity of God's love for you and his faithfulness for you is Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the signet ring that is being spoken about here. And see, when Jesus was 
presented at the temple. That is when the glory of the Lord returns. And what's so unique about this theophany here, that where we see this picture of heaven and earth shaking at the appearance of God. We see kingdoms being judged. We see brothers rising up against their brothers. But in the life of Jesus, when the glory of the Lord returned to the temple, who was the one who was judged? Who was the one whose brothers rose up against him? Who is the one who was judged by another kingdom? It is upon the cross where Jesus was actually under God's curse, where he experienced the full wrath of God, where he experienced the full wrath of God's covenant curses so that you would receive God's covenant blessings. That the whole earth shook, the moon eclipsed the sun, the temple curtain was torn in two, not and in God's coming, but in the death of his son, Jesus Christ, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. In other words, Jesus was cursed so that you would be blessed, that Jesus was rejected so that you would be accepted, that Jesus was pierced so that you would be prized. Upon the cross, Jesus looked like the disregarded, rejected signet ring that God just tossed aside but upon the cross, that's what it would, upon the cross, Jesus had the appearance of a signet ring that was tossed aside instead of being God's beloved son in whom he is well pleased. All this goes to say that Jesus was rejected so that you would not be. That here we are as a faithless people and we have a faithful God. We're only here this morning because we have a faithful God. It's at the cross that God shook the heavens and the earth, establishing his new reign over all things. That is where this new kingdom was established. And so the picture that we have from Haggai is that here's this temple being rebuilt. Here's this Davidic covenant being renewed. And these, because of these two things, there is a resurrected relationship between God and his people. No more covenant curses, only God's covenant blessings. That we are here once again because we have a faithful God. And I want to return to what I was saying earlier. That Zerubbabel, he was a quiet example of obedience to the Lord. He's called to rebuild the temple. He's called to rebuild the temple amidst famine, droughts, increased taxes. Persia was getting ready to go to war with Greece. They're under this foreign rule. But his faith and his quiet obedience is meant to be a picture for us as well. That our own work amidst the hardship of life is actually never empty or pointless. It's never empty or pointless. That God is actually always at work in the world. And God chooses to work in the world through his people. So that we do not labor in vain. And one day God will actually say to you, well done, my good and faithful servants. But why does he say that? That would he say that because of our own? own religiosity of all the good things that we have done? No, that's not why God says that. God says that because we have a faithful Savior who was rejected so that we would be accepted. So if you actually look at all of Scripture, if you think about Scripture for a moment, there are 66 books, some like 
45 different writers, prophets, poets, and apostles. And if you're looking for a central plot that holds all of Scripture together, this is it. You have a faithful God who is true to his word, true to his covenant, and he pursues you. Your faithful God pursues you amidst your faithlessness. And the proper response for us, friends, is to confess our faithlessness, to repent to him and come to him because he is the one who is pursuing us and who seeks life with you. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your good word that you have given us. That you are faithful to your word. You are faithful to your promise that you are the one who has pursued us every single day of our life. And you pursue us right now, even in this moment. And Father, we confess our faithlessness to you. The ways that we abandon you, the ways that we forsake you, the ways that we reject you. The times that we intend to do so, the times that we overlook and don't intend to do so. Father, we confess these things and many more. But Father, we pray for a spirit to expose the ways that we are faithless to you, that we are faithless to your calling upon our life. And Father, we pray that you would give us the grace and strength to repent and to walk in repentance in the coming days and weeks ahead. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.